Here's a simple melody, simple Krishna melody. Have fun. Ah! 
think of the, the Krishna mantra, there are descriptions in the in the medieval texts, the Bhakti texts, <laughs> that uh, when the chanting goes on in the spiritual realm, birds fall out of the sky. And when they hear Krishna playing his flute and people chanting his name, birds fall out of the sky, cows give abundant milk. What else happens? Rivers run backwards. Yes. Is that why they wrote the song? And why do birds fall out of the sky? Something like that. Yes, exactly. That was a devotee who wrote that one. Two points for Sharon. Is it your birthday? say, may this be your last 35th birthday, you know, whatever the birth, may this be your last incarnation so it's nice to see you all here, hello, what's your name? Karel pleasure pleasure to meet you, thank you for being here how you doing? yeah, okay, nice to see you uh, we have Abby here this evening thanks for joining us and uh, who else we got, what's your name? Damon Good to see you again. We have my dear friend Beth, visiting from uptown. <laughs> An import from uptown. Yes? Is everybody in a book? I think we're short. So somebody can share with some of the new people. Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you. Didn't see you back there. Behind Anna. So I guess we better shut the door because there's a lot of social life going on outside. So as always, lovely to see you all. Thank you for being here. Um, I just got back early this morning from Colorado. My daughter graduated Colorado College yesterday, which is this beautiful, beautiful campus uh, nestled at the foot of Pikes Peak. And um, it was really quite, quite moving to um, hear some of the sentiments and the appreciations from the professors and the faculty and some of the speeches and all. This is it's a very, very environmentally attuned young uh, group of graduates, very aware of the fact that they really need to be part of the solution. You know, they, they can, that we can no longer just be contributing to the problem, we have to be part of the solution. And it was really quite wonderful to see that kind of mood permeating, you know, the beer kegs and doobies and all the rest <laughs> going on. It's really great. <laughs> really true. Um, yes, I'm very proud of my daughter for having graduated cum laude in philosophy. Well, that comes from, I'm not quite sure. She's very much her own person. She started a, a, 
a good food club on campus, which is about creating organic gardens and giving the surplus to worthy organizations. It's making people more aware of the impact of what we eat. And, uh, and she sings like a son of a gun. Her, her band is going to be touring the East Coast this summer, and I'm thinking, Abhi, I have to credit Abhi with this idea, maybe br- bringing them here to Jiva Mukti. Rock, yeah. It's called the John Band. There are two Johns in the band. It's called the John Band. <laughs> right. So, anyway. What kind of music do they play? A um, little Grateful Dead, a little Joe Cocker, a hey, little original hey, hey, stuff. So, some cover. Yeah. <laughs> really, really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Vegan. <laughs> Vegan hash brownies. Isn't it? <laughs> That's how. That's how we roll here at Jiva Mukti. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway. How is everybody? Everything okay? Is everything groovy? Or do you, are, you know, there anybody need an intervention this week? <laughs> okay? Okay. Um, very, very interesting group. By the way, um, those of you who have kind of been around <clears throat> the class and the discussion group the last few weeks, hey, you hide. Uh, are aware that we've been having conversations about initiation and the guru-shishya relationship, the teacher-disciple relationship, and the the importance of that in uh, progressive spiritual practice. Why why that's a part of the great traditions uh, is the subject of today's verse. So we'll have a, you know, put a few notes together as usual, trying to throw some, you know, curveballs from left field into the conversation, bringing in some stuff in the news, some, you know, new books out on the market or whatever, and then we'll have um, a good old chit-chat about this very important topic. So if you're going to chant with me, uh, please open your hymnal to page... It's, uh, it's verse um, 15, on page 203, in the, if you have the hardbound orange edition of Bhagavad Gita, it's um, chapter 4, verse 15, on page uh, 203. And the melody that we'll use today is... Evam, all right, let's start with the invocation and then we'll chant the verse together. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Please repeat. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Notice how that sound kind of resonates, you know? But there's a power to the Sanskrit mantras, and these kinds of invocations have a very practical purpose. And that's basically to clear New York out of your head. Leave all that stressed out, you know, overworked, underpaid, you know, underappreciated you know, ready to bolt, bitter New Yorker, outside the door. And that sound kind of allows you to enter into a different space, 
So it has a very practical purpose, as well as invoking the blessings of the Supreme and the lineage of teachers. Again, very relevant to today's, today's verse. Um, so the verse sounds something like this. Try repeating just that line with me. The um, the dot over the M, that diacritic mark, kind of renders the M into an ung, as though your tongue is kind of stuck to the back of your throat. So it's evang, yeah. And then the J with the N with that squiggly little line over it is gya. Gya. Uh, and because the A has a, a long line over it, that long line renders the A uh into an A. Uh. So, gyatva. Yeah? Gyatva. The next word, kritam, uh, meaning was performed, you'll notice the dot the diacritic under the R that under that renders that sound into a R like R I right so that word is pronounced kritam so the line again will be evam gyatva kritam karma you try evam gyatva kritam karma purverapi mamukshubi purverapi Guru Karmeva Tasmatvam 
Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else up for the challenge? All right, Uddhava Gita Prabhu. generation of Sanskrit pundits here. Evam gyatva kritam karma purvai rapi mamukshubi kuru karma evatasmatvam purvai purva taram kritam. All the liberated souls in ancient times acted with this understanding of my transcendental nature. Therefore, you should perform your duty following in their footsteps. Now here is, here is Krishna beginning to describe himself to Arjuna in terms of his divinity. There's a separation. There's a change of tone that has occurred over the course of these first four chapters of the Gita. Arjuna and Krishna began their entrance into the battlefield as lifelong friends, as family members, as contemporaries. At one point earlier in the Gita, Arjuna turns to Krishna and says, I am totally lost. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Um, Now I am giving myself over to you as your shishya, as your disciple. I would like our friendly conversations to end. And now I'd like to change the relationship. I'd like you to kindly see me now no longer as your childhood friend or as the guy who's married to your sister and all of that stuff. I I want you to be my guru now. I want you to be my teacher. That stepping forward to receive initiation is a critical moment in spiritual life. And this particular verse where Krishna says, you know, what you're doing now is not new. The great liberated souls of the past have all followed in this same kind of change of relationship where when the time came for them to get serious about their spiritual life, they stepped forward and requested initiation. They requested that things get serious. I'll never forget one lecture that my teacher gave where he was, um, I guess he must have been concerned because, you know, we old hippies back in the day were not always taking our vows seriously. You know, initiation, at least in the Vaishnava tradition, which is the tradition where the Gita comes from, requires that there be certain behavioral prescriptions. Specifically, You have to swear off of all drugs. The orthodox interpretation of that particular prescription includes coffee and tea. No stimulants of any kind. Very strict. The second behavioral 
prescription is no meat or fish or eggs in the diet. Not the word vegan, there's no Sanskrit word for vegan, but it's almost suggested because eggs are also not a part of the traditional Ayurvedic diet. The deeper meaning of that, of course, being compassion toward, toward all living things. The third behavioral guideline for initiation is that you have to accept to limit your sexual activity to one partner. Find a partner, commit to that person, and keep your stuff to yourselves. Basically. Keep it at home. That's the third part of that prescription. The fourth is no gambling. And for the long, for years, I couldn't figure out how did gambling get in there? <laughs> I can understand you know, how did gambling sneak in there? And uh, as best I can understand that particular guideline for initiation, first of all, life's already a big enough gamble. You, know, you don't have to be wasting your time and money taking unnecessary risks. And also, the Sanskrit word for... You know what money is called in Sanskrit? Lakshmi, the goddess of fortune. And she is the constant companion of Narayana, the supreme being. So, money in that sense is the energy of God and should not be frivolously risked, put at risk. That's also to be offered back as, an, as, as service, as devotions, and put to good use. So those are the four, you know, and we're kind of entering into the yama and niyama section of Patanjali when you talk about those kinds of behavioral guidelines. The other behavioral guideline in, in the Vaishnava tradition is that there is a prescribed number of rounds on beads of chanting of the Krishna mantra. Now this is more recently in the Gaudiya Vaishnava lineage, that is to say the lineage that descends from the 16th century saint and avatar Chaitanya, who brought the Krishna mantra into the public purview. Prior to Chaitanya, there was chanting of mantras, but it wasn't the big kind of kirtan movement that we see out there today. You know, there were no CDs back then. <laughs> there was no, you know, big, you know, rock out with Krishnadas at the ballroom kind of thing. It wasn't happening. It was, it was done in private and usually limited to the um, caste Brahmins. There was kind of a a stranglehold on the uh, sacred teachings and mantras as a, a way of protecting the community. There, you know, it's, a, it's, it's easy to condemn, you know, oh, caste Brahmanism and so on, just, you know, suppressing people and exploiting and so on. There was a reason why caste Brahmanism came about, and it has to do with the fact that India, for thousands of years, has been a, a subjugated nation. You know, the Mughals and British, there was, there says, India has welcomed people with open arms, and they've taken up outside powers have taken advantage of that. So, in order to protect the integrity of the culture, there was a necessity to circle the wagons, so to speak. And so, the religious leaders became very selective about who should be given the privilege of entering into the recitation of the sacred mantras, the performing of the sacred rites, and so on. So it wasn't just an arbitrary power grab, which is often how it's described. It did have a historic purpose to it. But it, it became manipulated 
And what Chaitanya did in the... Chaitanya appeared in 1486 in Bengal. And uh, we've talked something about the life of Chaitanya. I think we, we probably should go back and complete that story at some point. Um, by bringing the chanting into uh, the public, by organizing street chanting parties. You know when you see Krishna devotees on the street chanting Hare Krishna with the drums and the kartals? That's a tradition that dates back nearly 600 years to Chaitanya's uh, Sankirtan parties in Bengal. So it's an ancient practice. And um, the, 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 the implicit statement there is that uh, divinity is the birthright of all souls. It is not necessary, as Shankara taught in the South Indian Shankarite monistic school, that you ha- in order to perform the rituals, you have to be born in a Brahmin family, for one. Two, you have to be male. Women were excluded. You, know, you had to be able to master certain levels of scriptural understanding and so on. Chaitanya said, all of that is artificial. All of that is artificial. All beings are by nature parts and parcels of Krishna. That was his teaching. That we are all lovers of God by our very nature. And so everyone has access to the names of God and to the privilege of chanting God's name. So, um, Hare Krishna. <laughs> so the question arises, however, is there a difference in studying spiritual life and studying anything else? I mean, those of you who have been through school, you were given textbooks and you were told to study the textbooks and you mastered certain information. You were able to recapitulate what you had learned in papers and in tests and exams and theses if you've gone up to graduate studies. And is there a difference between um, that kind of mastery of a certain body of knowledge and the mastery of spiritual knowledge? When we enter into a study of the Gita, for example, is there a different approach? What are the tools that we have for understanding an esoteric philosophy? It's very hard to take this into a laboratory, Krishna's teachings, and somehow with the proper kind of um, tools of analysis demonstrate with sufficient evidence that there is proof of the truthfulness of the Gita. It, it, it doesn't get measured with quite the same kind of instruments. First of all, we're talking about something that cannot be seen, right? What cannot be seen? The self, the Atma, is described in the Sanskrit text as being uh, of such a subatomic size that it is impossible to perceive the soul. There is no instrument that is fine enough to perceive the soul and the body, the very source of energy that keeps us moving and thinking and acting and speaking. And in a sense, you can draw a parallel to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that you cannot observe both the position and the velocity of a particle because just the mere fact of reflecting enough light onto a particle that you can perceive it will alter its trajectory, will alter its velocity. So in a sense, we are cut off from perceiving reality by virtue of working with imperfect blunt senses. Therefore, 
science enters into a space of collaboration between research and theory. You might call it, you know, the hard sciences and the humanities, if you will. You might call it the um, um, analytical mind and the creative mind. But all of the great innovations in science have come from this collaboration of what is known and what is not known. What can be tested in a laboratory and that which can only be perceived by a leap of faith. So now, are we talking about science or are we talking about faith? Because at a certain point, the two tend to mirror one another. There are things about the Gita's teachings that we can understand by experiment. Where is the laboratory? Right here. Where is the subject of the experiment? Right here. So you try it. I think there's something like four or five Nobel Prizes in medicine that have been awarded to people who did the unthinkable. You know, they would swallow some kind of poisonous concoction just to see what the effect of that was on themselves because they couldn't legally get anyone else to do it. And by taking that kind of risk, they broke new ground, achieved great acclaim, and did great things to help others. So sometimes that going inside the laboratory of our own bodies and experimenting, bodies and minds, and experimenting with mantras, for example, is the only way to push yourself past the limits of what can be understood empirically. Um, So that creative interaction between facts and interpretation of facts. Facts do not equal truth. Facts do not equal truth. Facts can point you in the direction of truth. But there is a big distinction between facts and truth. The founding fathers knew that which is why they created a government that had three parts to it. You have an executive, you have a legislative, and then you have a judiciary. Because they understood that no one truth, no one set of facts, if you will, constitutes the totality of truth. And in a sense, you might equate those three divisions of the governmental system that we know with the Vedic system of knowledge where the guru would be the equivalent of the executive branch of the government, where the company of sadhus, the company of fellow journeyers on the spiritual path, becomes the legislature, and where the judiciary is the equivalent of shastra, scriptures, the laws. And those three things need to balance, because no one of them, and this includes the guru, has a complete handle on truth. I remember how impressed I was when my spiritual master, Srila Prabhupada, would always come, assemble us in his room and say, what do you think we should do? Now, he knew perfectly well his own mind, if there was something that had to be done, some course of action, some course of, some program to be done somewhere. But he consciously engaged us in the thinking process because the relationship between guru and disciple is not one of top-down management. It's one of engagement. It's one of cooperation. 
So even though he had his own ideas, he would table his own ideas if the group of us decided otherwise. He wanted us to learn, even if it meant making mistakes. Don't be afraid of mistakes. They're your best friends. I don't think there's anything greater that you can do to learn and grow than to make mistakes. It was... um, Carl Jung had a a friend, and this friend had a 15-year-old daughter. And Jung, in his later years, didn't speak much. But this young woman knew that he was very, had a creative mind, so she uh, got permission to go and talk with Jung and asked him, um, Professor Jung, uh, Herr Jung, what is, I, how, what can I do to reach the, the end of my path in life? And without a moment's hesitation, Jung looked at her, opened his eyes and said, take the detour. The predictable path is the one where you will not learn anything. You learn by going into terra incognita, by going into places you've never been. And a teacher knows that. A skilled teacher knows that. Knows not to give you the answers, but to encourage you to find your answers. Because your answers are not necessarily this person's answers, And those answers are not necessarily this person's answers. And that willingness to put your certitude aside for the benefit of others is the the sign of enlightenment. You know, it's very nice to defend your beliefs, you know, vigorously, especially if they're intelligently argued. To question your beliefs, particularly those that are deepest inside you, that's a sign of great thinking. So we have this Vedic system, which is set up not always in the way that it appears, which externally seems very ritualistic and very kind of laden with, you know, saris and dotis and face painting and a lot of things. The, the essence of that relationship between the teacher and the disciple, teacher and student, is, is one of uh, cooperation, where the teacher makes a promise to bring you to full Krishna consciousness, full self-realization. And our promise on our part as students is to take it seriously. So in this one lecture that Prabhupada gave... <laughs> He said, um, if you're thinking, I'm going to do this, but I'm also going to do that. Do that. Don't do this. Very succinct, very powerful, very scary. Because what he meant was, if you're thinking, I'm going to take a guru, and I'm also going to go party. Go party. You don't need a guru. Do your thing. Do what you want to do. But if you want to take your spiritual life seriously, then consider the consequences. That there is a connection between behavior patterns 
and your own progress in spiritual life. So, we need visionaries to interpret the laws. We need visionaries. And teachers, good teachers are visionaries. They are not only qualified by having mastered the basics, and you cannot avoid that. You must master the basics. You know some of the greatest jazz musicians of all times started in classical music. They started doing their scales and you know, learning very, very rigorous classical compositions. Then you can start improvising. You don't start by becoming an improvisationist. You start with the basics. So great teachers have mastered the basics. That's called shrotriyam, shrotriyam. Shruti, having, coming down in the disciplic line, that your teachings are not your own invention, but you can point to their provenance. There is lineage here. There's history. It's something that has withstood the test of time. It's not arbitrary. It's not, oh, my church, you know, my way or the highway kind of thing. The reason for wanting to come in a lineage of teachers is that it means that the teachings have withstood the test of time. That despite all of the external changes in culture, in our knowledge of human behavior, of psychology, of environment, whatever it may be, there are fundamental truths about ourselves and the world we live in that have remained valid over time. That has to be passed along intact. But then the other is Brahmanishtam. These are the two things. Shrotriyam and then Brahmanishtam. Brahmanishtam means that they're walking their talk. <laughs> that they know, this individual knows how to take those teachings and apply them according to the time and circumstances of the day. That's where we get into trouble. Because too often people present themselves as teachers who are very good at improvising new ways of presenting things, but they have not mastered the basics and they're not walking their talk. So this came up recently. We would have to go into all the details of it, but it's a, it can be tragic when that happens. People can feel terribly betrayed. And, um, and then they might doubt the whole thing. Oh, this person who's the embodiment of these teachings has turned out to be a fraud. The whole thing must be a fraud. That's a great tragedy. That's called Atmahana and the Isa Upanishad. Uh, it's called the destroyer of souls. That you can wreak such havoc on someone's faith, you know, and their, their, their nascent growing spiritual life and spiritual practice that you might turn them off forever. At least in this lifetime they may never come back again if they've they become that discouraged. So we need those innovators. So there's the law that's called positive, two things, positive law and natural law. Positive law means that somebody somewhere has decided this needs to be embodied in writing. It's on the books. It's a law. You cannot deny it. It's there, it's in writing. It's right there on the page. Natural law is the, if you will, the background architecture to creation, which in some instances can supersede the positive law. So you, there may be some laws that you think are stupid. Well, I think that law about you know, jaywalking, that's a stupid law. I'm not going to obey that law. Right? And if a judge felt like that and passed decisions, made decisions based on that personal opinion, I think we'd have a hard time with that kind of judgment. Right? 
So whether you agree with the law or not, the fact that it's posited means this is the structure by which this society will operate effectively. And until such time as the law is changed, it has to be obeyed. Natural law says that even if it's posited, there is this almost cosmic or divine background, you might say, given by God or just by virtue of the fact that we're human beings, there are certain rights that you are entitled to no matter what the positive law says, no matter what the embodied or printed law says in any state, nation, government, or military force. The right to the integrity of of your life, the right to live. No one has the right to violate that. No matter what the law may be, even in uh, a, a, a dictatorial government. There's, there's a famous case that came out of World War II in Germany that um, has become known as the, the bitter husband case. Here's the story. Um, there was a, a German young man who was married and he was enlisted into uh, the Wehrmacht, the ordinary German army, and sent to the Eastern Front. Right? So meanwhile... The wife at home is having an affair with the neighbor. So on the Eastern Front is where German soldiers got to see how horrible the Nazi party could be because what they did even to their own soldiers on the Eastern Front uh, was not to be believed. And the Eastern there was no food, there was no shelter, there was no nothing. You were there to fight the, the Russian army and there was no way they were going to win. That's, that was the end of, the beginning of the end was the Eastern Front. So he came back having seen what the Germans could do to their own soldiers, you know, literally hanging them for insubordination or whatever, and started bad-mouthing the German government to his wife. Now, at this time in Nazi Germany, to speak ill of the government was illegal. And so the wife, wanting to get the husband out of the way so she could kind of carry on with the neighbor, betrayed the husband to the German authorities. He was thrown in jail and served something like two years in jail. The war ends, the Nazi party is defeated, the husband comes out of jail and wants to sue the German government for having put him through two years of jail illegally. This case has never been resolved. It's more than 65 years later. It has never been resolved. What is the status of law in an illegal government? It was positive law at the time. According to Nazi law, he was guilty of a crime. So how we go back and forth requires creative minds of people of integrity. The Bill of Rights says all men are created equal. Now it took people of great integrity many years later to figure out that that also includes women and minorities, which it didn't at the time of its formation. So to do that, to interpret the law, to interpret scripture, I think Beth and I were talking about this earlier. If you go to, um, uh, what was it, Leviticus 5? If you go, if you, in the Bible, if you go to Leviticus 5, it says, um, uh, Thou shalt not eat the flesh of any creature with cloven hooves. Right? Then if you go to Leviticus, I think it's 18, it says, um, 
uh, it is an abomination for a man to sleep with a man or a woman with woman. So, at least from my experience in the Jewish community, we're really big on Leviticus 5. Not so big on Leviticus 13. And sometimes it's the other way around. It depends which temple you're going to. So how are things interpreted? Or we were talking about Genesis. Genesis says, the, 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 uh, the Hebrew word is bereshit, in the beginning. Right? So in the beginning can also be um, um, translated as meaning as creation was happening. So depending on how you translate that one word, either creation is a done deal, God created the world, and basically we're just along for the ride, we do what we're told. Or the creation is ongoing. It's still happening and we are participants in that creation. Whole other picture. Whole other thing. So who's going to make those decisions? That's a matter of realization. That's a matter of integrity. That's a matter of collaborative discussion. So this three-part system where there is a guru, there is a legislative branch, namely Sadhu Sangha, Satsang, what we have here, which is the company of people thinking together, discussing together, debating together. There's a great history of debate, you know, not only in Judaism, but also in the Vedic tradition of India. Wonderful tradition of debate. Healthy, invigorating. And then you have the judiciary, which is the, the laws. So uh, there's, there's really no sharp border that contains truth. That's when you get into fanaticism. This is the way it is, right, right here. Herman Weil, who's one of the main architects of the relativity and quantum revolutions, used to say, I always try to combine the truth with the beautiful. But when I have to choose one or the other, I usually choose the beautiful. So maybe what we're called upon to do by this verse in the Bhagavad Gita is to approach the teachings of the Gita in that kind of spirit of healthy scientific inquiry where we are allowing ourselves the freedom not only to study the positive teachings as they are embodied in the written text but also permit ourselves the freedom, the luxury, the privilege and the great satisfaction of bringing an alternate point of view so that we can understand the relevance of these teachings for the world that we live in. Now discuss among yourselves. <laughs> What do you think? Michael, you've always got good questions. What do you think? Question or comment? Any. Whatever. Well, I mean, you and I were talking about this a couple of times this week. And, um, one of the things that you, know, you and I talk about is not of a concern, especially with Western culture, Western culture is we hear stories of ancient stories or even mid, mid, 
century, 15th century stories where, you know, a great saint walking down the street, he sees a guy who's holding the Gita, and the guy's like, I don't know what this means, but I have a, my heart's full of love for God, and the guy's enlightened. Or we, we interact with people in the Western yoga culture very a lot that don't really have a strong educational background in scripture, text, who quite often say that they're enlightened when, and, and um, we mix our mm. new way, we mix our yogic texts and our ancient philosophies of prana and yoga sutras with this very loose new age culture. Mm-hmm. And I think it causes a lot of misfires at times. Mm-hmm. Um, where I know I have friends and friends of friends that have gone through some trauma right recently because of that. Yeah. That there's a lot of different misfires that can happen very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, there's a few things there. One is what happens if your teacher screws up? What do you do? First of all, you feel betrayed, you feel bitter, you feel angry, you feel like this should never have happened, how could I have made such a misjudgment? First thing is chill, just chill, right? Usually we don't have half the picture, let alone the whole, let alone the whole picture, right? So just suspend judgment, just suspend it. You, we really so rarely know everything that's going on, right? So that's item number one. Distrust, rumor, it's, it's a killer, it really is, and it... You know, it says that it said that it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and five minutes to destroy. It. And I've seen good people terribly hurt by malicious gossip. It's a, it's a terrible thing. So there's that. On the other hand, there may be some truth to wrongdoing, accusations of wrongdoing. So the next thing we have to remember is always to act from compassion. Even if there is sanction necessary or legal action that's necessary, that does not rob us of the responsibility to always be compassionate. That this person, whatever this person may have done, they've also done a lot of good. And see both sides of the scale. There's no such thing as pure evil and there's no such thing as pure good. So see through that vision of compassion. Vidya Vinaya Sampani Brahmani Gavi Hastani Suni Chevas Vapakecha Brahmana Pandita Samadarshan. That a, a pundit, a wise person, has Samadarshan, a vision of equality, equanimity, and sees Vinya Vinaya Sampani Brahmani Gavi Hastani, uh, a wise and gentle Brahmin, an elephant, a dog, and someone who eats dogs. A pundit sees them all as equal. So we cultivate that vision of compassion. The the next thing, of course, is also that be patient. It's possible that someone who's made a really bad mistake will regret someday what he or she has done, will make amends, and come back to the path. 
And then there are those people who just should be thrown in prison because they're never going to lament it. They did what they did intentionally. It was hurtful. It was wrong. It was illegal. And they should never have presented themselves as a teacher in the first place. So there's this whole spectrum here. Wide, wide spectrum of possibilities. And maybe the most important thing is because we don't know everything, we should just suspend judgment and get on with our business. But of course, if someone has put their trust and then that trust has been betrayed, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And that has to be acknowledged that there are a lot of broken hearts out there and they need to be heard and they deserve to be healed. So in large measure, when that happens, our thought should be for those God brothers and God sisters around us. Because if I'm feeling betrayed and hurt and all these horrible emotions, are they not also feeling that way? And should, not I, should I not be there and extend a, hand, a hand, extend a hand of sympathy to them? We're called upon to become agents of that kind of healing in the world. So get over it. Get out of your own misery and move up to the place that we were meant to be, which is caring for others. That would be my heartfelt suggestion, that whenever that kind of a tragedy occurs, be there for others, because if you're feeling that way, there are a lot of other people feeling that way. Uh, this isn't about uh, teaching. But what you were saying about um, acknowledging the struggles of others and understanding that someone else goes through the site and bad reputation. Just maybe thinking of a question, you know, I thought about it, I'm sure maybe you didn't have this before, but should the Navy SEALs not have killed Osama bin Laden? Should there have been a course of action? Osama bin Laden sealed his own fate. And it was the Navy SEAL's responsibility to enact that order. So in that sense, what was to have happened, happened. You know, I... Honestly, I try, I try diligently to not just look at the world in terms of karma. You know, that he got what he deserved kind of thing. I, I, that, that's such simplistic thinking. I mean, Dharma, Dharma, duty, was it the seals? Oh, it was their, oh, was it their Dharma? Dharma. Yes, it, it was their, it's called Chatriya Dharma. That's exactly what it was. If you're not prepared for that kind of life, and if you cannot do that, you should probably find a different profession. It's not for everyone. You know, it took me a long time to reconcile the fact that I truly believe in nonviolence and peaceful living and, and, and doing as little harm as possible, and also being prepared to retaliate if there is aggression. That was a, you know, for an old hippie like me, it was hard to get my arms around that one, that there is actually a spiritual side to the waging of war. That's a tough one. 
And yet it's necessary. There are times when it's necessary. Action is required when good arguments fail. Yeah, you know what the Sanskrit for that is? That uh, a culture that is not ruled by Shastra will be ruled by Shastra. Shastra with a long A means scripture. Shastra with a short A means weapons. We had a whole lecture on Yeah, we did. We, we had a long talk about, about this. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading your book on George Harrison, and there's a chapter where a guru visits um, Bay, I guess, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and Alan Ginsberg walks on stage, sits next to him and says how meditating is a good way to come down from an LSD trip. <laughs> and I was thinking that, um, I started thinking that a lot of the, potentially a lot of the teachers that I've listened to now used meditative accelerants. Like last week's guest. I said, yeah, that was Hari Kirtan's dainty phrase for LSD and other so drugs. I was thinking if we're Meditative th- accelerance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that should be copyrighted. It's that good. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking in, in the context of the time that was really accepted. And that, so if I, if I hold that against that whole generation and say I can't listen to their message because of what they did in the 70s, I feel like. Maybe you have to separate the messenger and the message. And uh, even if there is a faulty messenger, it can still be a really good message. That's a good and, point. And it would be really silly of me to say anyone that did LSD in the 70s is a lousy teacher now. Well, there goes the entire NYU faculty, I can tell you. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's well said. I, that, was, that was well said, Frank. Uh, we do not have to be completely realized enlightened Krishna conscious beings in order to talk about the Bhagavad Gita or explain it. We need to couple, as we've been discussing about this verse, a solid knowledge of the text. You can't ignore that. You've got to understand what the text means. I, I, I am actually up here under total false pretenses. I don't have anywhere, I am not a scholar of the Bhagavad Gita. I don't have anywhere near the familiarity with the standard texts and the different interpretations and recensions and commentaries to qualify as a scholar of the Bhagavad Gita. What I do is a kind of populist interpretation. But there's just enough background there so that I can make it sound good. (laughs) Um, And having, you know, you do have to have that grounding in it. So, and, and, and the willingness, the courage, and it does take courage, to step outside your own certitude. You know, I suspect if we're ever going to see peace in the Middle East or wherever the hell it's, it's going to be somebody agreeing to step outside the utter certitude of their knowing that this is right, this is the way it is, long enough and with ears wide open enough to listen and honor someone else's understanding of truth. Until that happens, I don't think there's ever going to be reconciliation anywhere. So being right is not what it's all about. You can be right and live a very, very lonely life. 
Because who the hell wants to have anything to do with you? I, I would dare to say that some of the smartest people I've ever known in my entire life have had the decency and the honesty to say, I don't know when they've been asked a question for which they do not have the answer. I don't know. When was the last time you heard that in a yoga class? I don't know. It's not that common. Why? Because by virtue of sitting here, we're supposed to know it all. Isn't that why you're sitting there? Don't you know everything? Even, even in the you know, orthodox traditions, there's been this marvelous willingness on the part of the great commentators to say, I don't understand this passage here, or I don't understand this word. What do you think? And that opens a dialogue, and that's when truth comes out. Facts anybody can access, especially these days. Who cares for your facts? Right? But the ability to go beyond facts, to get to some kind of fundamental truth or something, that, that, that requires humility, a willingness to say you don't know, and a willingness to stretch the boundaries of what's familiar. You've got to step outside that, as we call it, the comfort zone, right? You've got to do that, which is what Krishna is telling Arjuna. Ultimately, that's the whole message of the Bhagavad Gita, is get outside your comfort zone. The very thing that you need to grow is the thing that you least want to do. So why are you waiting? <laughs> well, it depends how much you want to spend. <laughs> you know, it, it's drugs of different kinds, whether it's hallucinogens or amphetamines or, you know, just your old everyday run-of-the-mill pot. <laughs> it was a rather elegant way of describing... <clears throat> something that alters a state of consciousness. See, of course, the great thing about that is that those who are really proficient in yoga and meditation, they don't need those. The, the drugs are here. Those same drugs can be generated in the pharmacy of your brain if you know how to do it. You know, endorphins come from the same pharmacy of, of, of same category as drugs as, as uh, you know, heroin. Yeah. Wasn't there a story where Sri Prabhupada was hanging out with a bunch of hippies that were all on LSD and he's like, what are you taking? They're like, oh, we're taking LSD. It's awakening our minds. And he's like, okay, I want to see what this is like. And he took it and he's like, I don't see what you're talking about. I, didn't, I don't feel anything. No, that wasn't Prabhupada. Yes, like, oh, it wasn't? That's right. And he's just like, I'm already there. What, what are you guys taking this drug for? Well, it, it's... It's, it's a story that Ram Dass tells in Be Here Now. And, uh, you know, it took place on his first trip to India. And uh, Neem Karoli Baba didn't say anything, actually. He just looked at Richard Alpert and smiled as though, what's the big deal? So, you know, the point being that those who are aware of their deeper self remain steady through no matter how dramatic the changes in metabolic conditions or body chemistry or the conditions around you, 
they're steady. The Gita describes it like a, the flame of a candle in a windless place. So, you know, to say nothing of the everyday stresses and tensions that, that you face when you go off to work every day, you know, finding that place where the self dwells, you can be steady under all conditions. Just one second. I know there's a tradition of sadness that smoke pot, and so I just I know that you know they talk about you know not using other substances like you mentioned like you know, coffee and things like that. But I know that there's also a mythology that Krishna kind of I mean you can correct me I don't know something like something to the effect that Krishna uh, gave me marijuana to help speed up consciousness. I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but. <laughs> I think that was Zap comic number 103. You're referring to certain communities uh, among the Shaivites, the followers of Lord Shiva, um, who smoke ganja as an enhancement to their meditations on Shiva. And it's also there in the Rastafarian tradition as well. Uh, and... Uh, the only thing I can, I, you know, I, I don't, I can't endorse the use of drugs. I wouldn't do that. Um, it's, for most people, a dangerous undertaking, even under the most controlled of circumstances. Um, but they're, having been there, shall we say, back in the 60s, I can say that there was a difference between recreational drug use and drugs that were taken as a tool of learning. If you read any of the Carlos Castaneda books or whatever, those were very popular in the day, even though there's some disrepute around them. There, there is an ancient tradition of the Native Americans also who go on vision quests and use mushrooms to induce states of consciousness that are beyond the everyday. If you like, it's a 12-hour pilgrimage. But pilgrimage does the same thing. It takes you out of your familiar world and puts you into a world that you do not know precisely so that you can learn how you will behave in that world. How will I be? Who am I when you remove me from the trappings of the world that I've known all my life? I just got back from Colorado and my daughter was going through these extreme emotions. On the one hand, exhilarated, excited, happy, joyful. I mean, you should have seen her. It was amazing. She was with her friends. It was like this incredible end of this four-year college journey. And then at the same time, it was sheer terror. <coughs> Utter terror. That the familiar world, the universe that had been her home for four years, is now gone. She's not going back there next term. The places, that beautiful environment in Colorado the friends and the faculty whom she'd made friends with, the courses that she so relished and, and did so well in, all of that's part of history now. So moving out of that comfort zone and discovering who I will now be, and those of you who have children or will have children will experience this as well as you watch your children grow up and then they move away and all of a sudden... Now you are no longer a mother or a father. 
that identity is now gone. And yet it is what you associated with and saw yourself as being for so many years. And now all of a sudden, that's no longer present. Who are you? Who am I now? So when we talk about meditational enhancements, is that the phrase? Um, you know, we're, we were talking about something that among those who took their spiritual life seriously, they were looking to move away from the everyday reality to understand who they were in a very different kind of environment. Psychic, psychological, emotional, visual. But uh, you don't need to do that. Allen Ginsberg went to see Srila Prabhupada, my teacher, and was describing LSD to him and said that um, those among his circle who took LSD as part of their spiritual practice uh, were fond of thinking that God had the sense of humor to incarnate as a pill. And as a pill. And, and Prabhupada's response to that was, hmm, very dangerous thinking. It's not necessary. It, George Harrison, since you mentioned that book, George credited his experimenting with drugs as having opened many important doors for him. And many other people also credit drug experiences with that awakening, right? But do, do you know what happens when, when you take LSD? You, all right, all right. Uh, he said innocently. Um, okay, in you know the, the nerve endings, you 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 perceive through the senses, and the nerves that experience things, the visual nerves, the optic nerves, the sensory nerves, all of the various nerves that connect to the brain are not one uninterrupted long nerve wire, but they are lengths of nerves that are separated by kind of ball and socket effect at the end. And in between the ball and the socket, between one nerve ending and the beginning of the next nerve length, there's a chemical. And the electrical impulses when you touch something jumps that synaptic, it's called the synapse, the nerve synapse. It jumps the synaptic gap and continues on to the brain where it is interpreted by past experiences and by reference to this whole encyclopedia that you have up here, right? Okay. LSD and other hallucinogens enter into the bloodstream and replace or alter the chemical composition in that synaptic gap so that when the electrical impulse jumps the gap, it's altered. And it can be altered in very dramatic ways. If you read descriptions of LSD trips, or for those of you who have been there and remember what they were, colors become extraordinarily vivid. Music becomes extraordinarily complex and challenging. Ideas become very exciting. Even something very simple and mundane takes on cosmic significance. Everything is heightened. So the, the brain is... In, has no particular point of reference for these kinds of heightened sensations. And so things happen that do not happen in normal sensory awareness. Chairs move, pictures talk, 
doors open, you know, lights flash, and different kinds of sensory events occur that are not real in the sense of having any grounding in the normal world, but they are being perceived through the agency of these hallucinogens, and the brain is interpreting them in a different way. And it can be very scary. If all of a sudden you look, I remember it was a Jill Bolte Taylor who talks about her um, similar kind of out-of-body experience by having a, uh, a um, seizure, brain seizure. And she no longer could feel where her body ended. Her left hemisphere shut down and she entered into the creative space of her brain. And there was no difference between her hand and the space around her hand and the wall beyond the space. And she felt herself to be one with the energy of all creation, which is language that you find in some of the sacred texts, some of the spiritual journey texts, some of the Vedic texts as well. That sense of being a part of everything can be heightened by those alterations in the brain chemistry. Very addictive. Huh? Very I'm sorry, Michael, I can't hear you. Oh, I said it's very addictive to experience that in an accelerated fashion, especially in a yoga community where we all want to feel kundalini and become jivamitas. Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the more proficient yogis can stimulate those same kinds of experiences by raising the life energies through the shashamna, is that the word for it? You can stimulate those same kind of changes in body chemistry and brain chemistry through breathing, through manipulation of energies and airs and muscles in the body. Yoga is very powerful. Read Patanjali. I forgot which chapter is Patanjali. It talks about the, uh, uh, the ashtasiddhis, the eight mystic powers that can be triggered or unleashed by practice of, of mystic yoga practice. You know, and it's amazing things that... That can, that can happen there. But Patanjali also describes those mystic powers as incidental flowers on the path of enlightenment. They're not the real goods. He says uh, this is important because if you get deep enough into yoga, you do these things, but doing these things takes you away from the truth. A distraction. It's a distraction. It's like money. It's like wealth or power. It might be nice to have it, but they can become a real distraction. And uh, George said one time, uh, he realized finally that to go higher, you have to stop getting high. Yeah. I didn't understand what becomes a distraction. Um, mystic powers, great uh, energy or strength of any kind, whether it be great monetary wealth, influence, any of the um, um, opulences of the world can be a distraction. It's why, for example, it ain't so great being too pretty. You know, it may be nice to be pretty because you get a lot of attention, but life's handed to you on a silver platter. You don't have to do anything. You know? It's like, well, you know, 
You want anything? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it can also be a tool to help break your your consciousness of, of um, present state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. For example, when um, when Ram Dass, before he was Ram Dass mm -hmm. in India, he talked about when he first went into the Purvabhava, he was like, what is all this yoga stuff? Guru, and, you know, I'm a Harvard professor, and, you know, I'm, I'm logically marked, I'm, I have a logical mind. This stuff is it's just not, it's not for me. But even Kirby Baba, at least in the story, he says that he broke that state of consciousness that he had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He had a lower vibration that he was operating at. When um, he said the next day, he saw me Kirby Baba, he said, So you were thinking about your mom. And he, he was, I guess he was thinking about his mom. You know, because his mom was sick or something. Mm -hmm. Of course, he didn't know that. But even Kirby Baba said to him, You know, last night he went out. So you, you were looking up his heart. He said after that, it shattered his, his present consciousness because he said, there's something here I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it wasn't used as a tool to show off yeah. says, but it was used to help. Yeah, his, you're his quite system. right. You're quite right. Um, uh, having your constructs broken down is also part of what a teacher will sometimes do by presenting alternatives, alternative ways of seeing your life, the experiences of your life, the realities around you. Um, and it can be rather frightening because, after all, that's what you've depended on. You depend on your common sense, you know, to get you through the day. And then if something very uncommonsensical occurs, you know, well, how do you deal with that? And um, there's someone I know in South Carolina who runs a wildlife preserve who had in his teens gone into extreme yogic breathing, extreme yogic breathing, and had developed some of these siddhis, some of these powers, where I have it on video, actually, you know, from when he was a young man. He's 54 now, I think. But when he was in his teens, he could do the kinds of things that you hear about in, you know, books like Autobiography of a Yogi. He, he would lie down on beds of nails. Now, when I say beds of nails, I don't mean short nails, that are, you know, next to each other like this that anybody could lie down on. It's like razor-sharp blades that were three inches apart. And he would lie down on this bed of blades and assistants, two guys, picked up a boulder, a small boulder, put it on his stomach and proceeded to smash it with sledgehammers. And he got up and his back was red and there were some dots, you know, from the points... But he, the skin was unbroken and he was not harmed. I took, I saw him take a, is it these bars that they use for cement? Rebar. Rebar. You know, big thick metal bar. And place one end against the wall and the other end against his eye. And walk forward until the bar bent. And his eye was a little red afterwards. I mean, you know... So he was a he is a disciple of Swami Satchidananda, and his teacher said to him, "You know, you can be doing these magic tricks you know, for people, and maybe you'll influence a few hundred people. If you take your abilities and apply them to saving endangered animals, you can change the world." So he went and founded the Tigers Wildlife Preserve in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which he's been doing for the past 30 years now. And there are millions of people who have gone through there.
What he found was that he, when he was doing these kinds of performances of the austerities in public, instead of attracting people to yoga, which was his hope, he was scaring them away. They, they couldn't bear to see it. It was, it was too far outside their definition of reality. They just thought it was, it was frightening to see these things run away. So, yeah. Um, if I may, I'd like to make a comment on an earlier comment and question. Mm-hmm. Um, someone mentioned if you're a murderer, you should prepare to be murdered. Uh, I'd have to disagree with that. I think there's still room for compassion on that. I think it depends on your starting point and your end point. If you're starting thinking that the murderer is pure evil, then it's your duty as a human being to prevent that from occurring. person to begin with, and something happened to them in their situation, environment, in the country, whatever, and that turning into a, into a murder, <coughs> I doubt they're the only person in that situation. So murdering the murderer is just going to take her over the cracks. And your end point is, uh, at, at a certain point, you have to show compassion, otherwise you're never going to see the end of it. Now, the problem is that compassion is seen as a form of weakness, unfortunately, in our society. If we're all vegans in this room, I'm sure you can contribute that, but just mention some of that to someone who eats meat for every single meal, just tell them I'm a vegan and, and see the look that you get, mm-hmm. see the comments that you get. You're, you're showing compassion not only to a human being, but also to an animal, they see that as a form of weakness. So, I might be digressing a little bit. No, no, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you bring it up because we love debate and tension here. But the point is, I, I, I'm a transplanted Indian from a Canadian. So, I don't want to say I'm full Canadian because I have lived in other parts of the world as well, but I realize this is a very, very sensitive issue, especially in this city, and emotions do come into play. Well, I'm glad you spoke up there. Would you like to say something? Yeah, no, I just wanted to clarify my statement. Um, I wasn't suggesting that someone who murders should be murdered. My point was that somebody, if violence and murder is your way of life, um, it should be expected that people are going to retaliate. I mean, so it's sort of um, a call to not commit murder, not commit violence, because you know you should see it, you should expect that similar things will happen to you. Not that they should happen to you. I totally agree with you, but I think we would go further if you look into why their way of life is violence and murder. Because I highly doubt that's what they were raised as a, as a child. That's what they're taught, taught in any religion. Uh, might maybe be some mis- misinterpretation in a religion, but I think you go further to look into the person and see why they ended up. But again, you have to start with believing that you were a good person to begin with. Uh, are you suggesting that Osama bin Laden was a religious person? Yeah, well, yes, he was. He was misinterpreted. Maybe he was taught misinterpretations of the Quran. But uh, if you think murdering Osama bin Laden is going to fix all your problems, um, he's, he's been murdered for a while. But the problems he owns are still lost friends from college on 9 11 that grew up with that I know very dearly and every year I go to a private funeral for 9-11 that only immediate friends and family are invited to in Red Hook and not everybody can go to. Um, yeah, Osama bin Laden was a tragedy. He thought he was a religious person and I have compassion for him. His death, although it was necessary, and because he was once wanting to kill us, 
I want to bring this down just a notch, and I'll, and I'll explain why. It's not that it's, an, it's, it's not an important subject, but with the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about your reference to vegans. I will, for the rest of my life, live with the memory of teaching over at Integral Yoga. I was Bhagavad Gita class, and we reached the point where we were talking about vegetarian diet, and a hand went up in the back, and it was someone who had been coming to these classes. I think it was a 12-week course or a 10-week course. She'd been there every week. And she said, look, I just have to go on record here. I take yoga three times a week. I've been coming to these classes, and I love these classes. But I have to really voice objection to being made to feel like a second-class citizen because I'm not vegetarian. I tried being vegetarian, and I got very sick, and my doctor told me, you just cannot do this, it's dangerous for you. And so, I understand and I appreciate what vegetarianism represents and what it's all about, but I sometimes feel like I'm being ostracized or, or marginalized or excluded from spiritual life because I cannot be a vegetarian. And from, I have to tell you, from that day on, I've been extremely careful about how I judge others by my own standards because things can change in a second. You know? and, and I'm not sure that even with all of the good arguments and good logic and sense and, and importance that we can ascribe to certain behavioral standards. I've reached a point in my wise old age, or maybe it's just old age, where I, I don't want to be so entrenched in how I see things that I inadvertently exclude people for any reason. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. There's someone who recently said to me, you know, I'm an atheist. Should I come to these classes? I thought, yes, I'm doing something right here. You know, it's like great. You know, <laughs> if we can, if we can actually have a conversation that's of value, you know, to anybody, uh, Yahoo! You know, it's fantastic. That's great. Other people who say, you know, I I really find myself so much more drawn to Jesus. Yahoo! That's fantastic. It's amazing. That's wonderful. We're doing something right. Something right is going on here. So, while we may point to a certain kind of way of being that we feel, okay, and, and you, if you want to extrapolate this to other faith cultures, because yoga is a kind of faith culture, to more dramatic or extreme religious cultures, then feel free to do so. I don't know whether we have the right to go around imposing our standards on other people. I think we get into a lot of trouble that way. For whatever my two cents are worth. Rodney, what's yeah, up? I'll say a question about the UV. I would say like two of them all in a Yeah, that's something to all that you can follow. 
I would say if you practice these signs pranayama meditation, then you will know what he is really trying to give you. It's like he's opening up all the gifts inside. If you listen to just that one line, where you can find and put all your thoughts in as one. And this way, you don't have to be separated with, with thousands of pages. You got to find the right page. If you one line, you can find the total happiness. It's like you carefully. It's like a mission. Yoga is a ceiling for all your highest thoughts, where you can seal them and become one. And this way, you can practice who you are. Not just what someone says, but it's what you think. Where you can become one with yourself in order to practice. Then you can love for it. Or else it's hard to say, love me, love me, you know. It's like it's difficult to just say, love me, you don't love someone. It's spiritual that do love and there's ones that don't. Mm-hmm. But yet, if the real one will love both of you, the thing is you have to find which one are you. The one that practices or the one that can act just out and you actually just love Krishna. Mm-hmm. The one that practices yoga is the one that needs more help. In other words, because they don't have that loving ability to go to a higher level. So what I'm trying to say is the body, the mind, and the world is a door. That's what it is. It's created for the spirit inside to open up and to show you who you are. That's why in yoga it will reveal it to you if you practice this because it's the greatest gift of who of us inside. That's why we're born. You got the body and you have the world. The thing is, what world? The world that you created of love from the day you're born that you can bring actually this right back to yoga testing because of all your weakness. That's a very advanced understanding, actually. It's a, it's a lovely one as well. I, I like most of all what you're saying in there about um, <laughs> the, the, the willingness to step outside what you know. Um, that's radical. I think it's where we have to go. I don't know if we're there yet. I, I a lot of people still like to, like to be told what the answers are. <laughs> this is how it is. This is the answer. And then be quiet. Because then you don't have to think about it. Thinking's hard work. Just tell me what to do. Practice. Just tell me what to do. Right? Practice. Well, practice, then yes. you have to yes. think about how to implement that it's in life. Easy. Yeah. It's easy to take a drug. Mm-hmm. You just pull the old thing in that. But that's not finding who you are. That's different. You're taking the drug to maybe transcend the body. But that's not going to help you find yourself. It's only a temporary thing. The yoga is by doing with the pot. Breathe. The breathing exercise is the greatest pot there is. They should tell me to teach class, what do you need pot for? I said, I teach them all to the natural breathing. I said, there's peace. I said, now you're going to find it because you're doing from your love within. You're doing love within to smoke a reefer. If you want, well, then fine. Have a good time. The other part about it is like, and uh, one thing when he's talking about the woman with the epilepsy and the convulsions, I'll explain that to you. What that woman is saying, which you will maybe, I don't know if you will know, but she is saying she was completely unattached at the time. And that was love with the wall, the cookie, the flower, the water. Whatever she saw and touched, the eyes, it was love. She had no attachments at all in that moment. That's what the yoga does for you. It will teach you actually to become unattached from all this where you see everything is love. Her, you, him, all. Everything you see, you want with it. That's the beauty of yoga. Beautiful. Not anything different. It's right to the point of who you are. It's the love inside us. We always know that when Rodney has a contribution to make, it's going to be very stimulating. So I thank you for that. Um, what do we got here? Cranberry oatmeal pecan. Cranberry oatmeal pecan cookie. Okay, so we're stepping outside our comfort zone. <laughs> 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 
Huh? Yes, yes, Michael. Yes. Yes, oh please, plug away, plug away. <laughs> so, this is a donation-based class, so, you know, for everybody that's coming in, everybody knows the normal statement. Um, we do accept donations, whatever you can give. We have a basket. Uh, it helps pay for the food, the podcasts, the um, other supplies that we have for class, books, etc. Flowers and our occasional programs. Also. And our occasional programs. And then our teacher has two books that we do offer for sale, or quote-unquote donations. Um, and they are Gita Wisdom, which is a summary of the Bhagavad Gita. And the other one is uh, Here Comes the Sun, which is an autobiography of George Harrison's spiritual journey. And they are by donation also. Thank you all very much. Um, our convention here, sometimes we don't always do it, but we, we end with chanting of Om. And then, uh, you have, then you can have your cooking.